Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. You know, in God's wisdom, He has designed this perfect sort of, uh, uh, if you will, field, this, this plot where we can be planted and grown, known as the family. He's designed it so that we can learn the essential lessons of life. We can learn, most importantly, about love. We're taught love by the kind of love that we see within the home. Hopefully, if it is a godly home, we're taught about godly love, although certainly that becomes distorted sometimes when it is under the influence of the world. But God has designed the home so that our earliest remembrances will be remembrances of the love of a mother for her child, the love of a husband for his wife, the love of parents for their children, the love of children for their parents. All those things are there so that we can learn those essential lessons as much by observation as we can by any kind of lesson. Those become the the groundwork, if you will, that color in everything else we will eventually learn in the abstract about love, the images, if you will, of ordinary life so that we can see how these things work themselves out. Well, when God wants to communicate his love to Israel, he draws on some of those essential images in the book of Jeremiah, particularly as we will see today in Jeremiah 31, so many of the images that God wants to cast before Israel are born out of their own experiences of love in their own life and their own families and their own homes. He presents himself as a husband wooing his wife or as a a father caring for his wayward child or as a shepherd watching over his flock or as a mother mourning for lost children. These are the images that he gives to Israel to help them color in, if you will, a little bit of what he's trying to say about love to them. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know we've been looking at these couple of chapters, Jeremiah 30 and 31, which present to us a whole series of poems, nine poems in general, uh, that, that are all about God's restorative work in the life of Israel. These poems, these sections that are given to us in these two chapters all begin with the same words, thus says the Lord. And you see it all the way back in chapter 30, verse 2, or in verse 5, or so on and so on. Even as we come today to chapter 31, we'll see it again there in verse 2, and in verse 7, and in verse 15, and on down through the passage. All of these sort of combining these two chapters together into a unit or a block that has come to be known as the book of consolation. It was a section that Jeremiah wrote sometime after the people of Israel had gone into captivity in Babylon. And then later, whenever the captives gathered up all the writings of Jeremiah and combined them together into one book, they chose to take these two chapters, this book of consolation, and to position it right in the very middle of the scroll of Jeremiah. So that it stands at the place of prominence, the place of most importance within his overall work, because that's the way that they saw it. 
They saw among everything that Jeremiah said about God's chastening and God's judgment, everything that he said, they looked at this as the most important message that he gave because it is a book about God's mercy and God's grace and God's love set against the backdrop of his wrath and his disciplining hand. Israel had rebelled against God, had refused to obey his commandments. This had gone on for a long time. It had been brewing for a long time. It had reached the point where it was um, it was unmasked, it was flagrant, it was brazen in their defiance and their disobedience of God. They were revolting against God with what you might say is a high hand of defiance. We talked about some of the examples in past weeks. But after all of God's attempts to reason with them, after all of God's attempts to call them back to a place of sanity and a place of stability and a place of sound judgment, after all of that, it reaches the point where he finally has to deal with them with the most severity. And so he sends armies against them, first of all, against the northern tribes. In 722 BC, he sends the Assyrians who take them away into captivity and then Finally, against the southern tribes in 597, God does the same thing where the nation of Babylon comes against Jerusalem, attacks the city, breaches its walls, slaughters the people, the population is decimated, the homes are destroyed, the cities are destroyed, the fields and the farms are ruined, people are shackled and enslaved, and they are utterly disgraced and humiliated under this hand of judgment. After all that, the Lord sends them these messages through the prophet Jeremiah. The messages that are found in this book of consolation and particularly here in chapter 31, it reaches its peak, if you will, at the very end when beginning in verse 31, he announces a whole new basis for his relationship with them. A whole new covenant, a new covenant that is celebrated in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. A new basis through which God's going to relate to them that's not only going to deal with them externally in terms of law, but it's going to deal with them internally in terms of God's power giving them a new heart. And we've been building our way up to that as we have been studying our way through this this, uh, chapter with these nine poems that present the promises of the new covenant Uh, Beginning all the way back in chapter 30, verses 1 through 4, as we saw the first one, from ruin to restoration, the Lord had already told them because of the stubbornness of their heart all the way back with Moses, 800 years earlier, that they they had received God's law. He already knew they were going to resist it. He already knew they were going to be rebellious. He already told them those things in Deuteronomy 30. And so this first poem basically just reminds them of that, quoting verbatim from Deuteronomy 30, helping him to realize that exactly what God said was going to happen, exactly what he predicted about them has come true. And then secondly, we saw a poem in verses 5 through 11 that we called From Panic to Praise, where Jeremiah basically takes them back to the days when, when Jerusalem fell, fell where, where there was a cry of panic and terror and no peace, as he says, and he highlights the sort of chaotic scene on the day when Babylon actually invaded and yet he gives them the promise that God's going to now remember them he's going to break their bondage he's going to restore them 
He promises that he will never make a full end of this nation as a people. And then in verses 12 through 17, we saw a third poem that we called From Hurt to Healing, where it pictures Israel as a mortally wounded person, a mortally wounded soldier, as a picture of the sinner who has suffered the blows of God's punishing hand. And now here they are sitting in the midst of the disaster that they have made of their own life. Their wound, he says, is incurable. It is gruesome and grievous. There's no medicine for it. There's no painkillers that will soothe the pain. All of their supposed fancies, their lovers, have abandoned them. They have no friends. They have no helpers. And the Lord declares in verse 14, I've dealt with you Excuse me, I've dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. But as he says in verse 17, as quickly as he struck them, he says, I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal. He's going to do this from the inside out. He's going to begin with their heart, he's going to heal that, and he's going to heal their their exterior wounds as well. And then in verse 18, we saw a fourth poem that runs through the remainder of the chapter all the way to verse 1 of chapter 31. We called it From Rage to Reconciliation, where he contrasts, particularly in verses 23 and 24, the, the tempest, the storm, as he says, of his wrath With the coming days when he will have compassion on Israel, well, he will restore their freedom, he will restore their homes, he will restore their honor. Well, all that brings us now today to a fifth poem that we can look at, beginning in chapter 31 and beginning in verse 2, a poem that we can call from distant to dearest, from distant to to dearest. And you see there in verse 2 the same introductory formula that introduces all of these poems. Thus says the Lord The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar, from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I've continued my faithfulness to you. Again I will build you, and you will be built, O virgin Israel. Again, You shall adorn yourself with tambourines. You shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant. They shall enjoy the fruit. And there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Now this section begins by taking Israel back to a very significant moment in their history. It was an episode that we commonly refer to as the golden calf. It's recorded in the book of Exodus, chapters 32 and 33. And in many ways, that small episode encapsulated all of the history of Israel. It happened at the foot of Mount Sinai at the very moment When God was graciously revealing Himself to Israel by His Word, by His law, by the Torah. Moses had gone up to the mountain to receive these tablets which were engraved by the finger of God. 
But as he begins to make his way down the mountain, he discovers that while God was graciously revealing himself to them in this special way, at that very moment of his kindness, they were turning away from him. They were turning to idolatry. They were crafting for themselves a, a golden calf, profaning God's name, thumbing their nose at God, committing what would later be described as spiritual adultery. And the Lord, we're told, immediately sends a plague throughout the camp so that people begin to die. Moses in Exodus 32 verse 26 and 27, makes a call to the people within the camp. He calls basically, he says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi come forward. And in verse 27, he tells them to strap their sword to their side and to go out into the camp and to strike down their neighbors, their friends, and even their brothers if they had participated in leading this rebellion. Scripture tells us that thousands of people were slaughtered that day by the sword in the wilderness. For those who survived, we're told, the plague was overtaking them until Moses interceded and prayed. And that prayer is given to us in Exodus 33, a passage that emphasizes how Moses had to go outside the camp. God wouldn't dwell in the camp anymore. He had to go outside the camp. In fact, Exodus 33, 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. You can hear it just emphasizing it was far away. It was outside. You had to go outside if you're going to seek God. He goes on in verses 12 through 17 of Exodus 33. And we see the words of Moses' prayer. Where over and over again in those few verses, Moses pleads with God on the basis of his favor. He keeps saying to them, if we have found favor, if I have found favor, if we have found favor with you, pleading with God to show Israel his favor. It's a word, by the way, which is often used in contrast to the idea of scorn. If you look in other places of the Old Testament, it's set in contrast to, for example, the husband who shows favor to his wife versus the one who scorns her. At first, God agrees to give his blessing to Israel and to give them rest. But he says he will not go on with them. He'll send them on their way. He'll even give them success and victory in taking the land of promise. But he won't go with them. He'll not dwell among them as a special relationship, them being his people and, and, and him being their God. But Moses pleads that if God will not go up with them, he should not send them forth. He, they, would, they would remain in the desert if it meant being with God. And of course, the Lord hears Moses' prayer for mercy 
And in Exodus 33, 14, he answers. And he simply says, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Well, all that sets the background for Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah says, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. That word grace is the word favor. It's the same word that Moses used repeatedly there in his prayers that the Lord would show him, show them his mercy, that he would show them his favor. But even then, it was still from a distance. As Jeremiah says, the Lord appeared to them from far away, from outside the camp. There was no intimate fellowship because of their sin and their condition. And this is the way people had to experience God. There was a sense of remoteness. There was a sense of distance. And Jeremiah uses this word here that's used in several places to describe people's approach to God, how they had to keep their distance from God lest they be consumed. There's always a fear of approaching God. In fact, you may remember we talked about last time in Jeremiah 30 verse 21, God even says that he's going to send them a king in the future Who would personally approach God, he says, because who in the world would dare to do such a thing? No one would do that. That was a terrifying thing to try to approach God. And so people related to God from a distance. But here, God is declaring that things are going to change. And he does this with some of the most beautiful language. He he says in verse 4, again, I will build you up and you will be built, O virgin Israel. Now this is remarkable, really. Because Israel has behaved like anything but virgin Israel. I mean, they, they, they could hardly take that name to themselves. In fact, what God has called them over and over again throughout the book of Jeremiah or Hosea or so many of the other prophets, what he's called them over and over again is a prostitute. They had prostituted their love. In Jeremiah, he talks about their many, many lovers. In fact, he even told them back at the beginning of Jeremiah 30, whenever he talks about their incurable wound, he says, all your lovers have abandoned you. But here... God refers to Israel not as the adulterous wife, not as the profaned wife, not as the wife who's prostituted herself over and over again with so many lovers. But God calls her virgin Israel. In other words, even after all that Israel has done, after all of the hurt and the pain and the disappointment, even though God's people deserved in every way to be treated like a scorned wife. God is not going to treat them that way. He is not going to give them even what they may deserve. He is going to deal with Israel the way he dealt with her at the beginning. His love is going to be just as ardent, just as passionate, just as initiating, 
just as free and lovely as it was when Israel was at first his virgin bride. You read something like that and you wonder, I mean, how in the world, in the real world, how in the world can that be? I mean, how can anyone ever overcome all of that hurt? How can anyone ever overcome all of that rejection? How can anyone ever come all of that uh, overcome all of that repeated and, and high-handed kind of rebellion? How could anyone ever treat their wife after she has disappointed them in so deep and profound a way? How could anyone ever love with that same kind of love? Well, God gave the answer there in verse 3 with a declaration I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. God's love is of this unique character. It is undying. It is everlasting. It is a rare kind of love, a love that doesn't die. In the words of Shakespeare, it doesn't alter when alteration finds. It is an everlasting love. Inexplicable love. George Wade Robertson tried to capture this so many years ago in his hymn when he says, Loved with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Old as full and perfect peace, old as transport all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his And he is mine. This is what God's telling Israel. I have a love for you that cannot. It cannot end. Because it is an everlasting love. And it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around that as an abstract thought because so many people claim to have this kind of love. We use it all the time. We sing about it. We write poems about it. We have movies about it or whatever. People stand at altars all the time and proclaim so boldly in front of other people that they're going to have this kind of love, this kind of love that's never going to die. It's going to be there for better or for worse. We mirror that after God's love. But God is proving His love not just with words, but with concrete actions after all is said and done. He's telling them, my love is everlasting. After everything that's happened, Israel, which in every way, deserved something else. Israel finally will be able to understand when God says He set His love on them. Israel will finally be able to understand what God's love is really all about. It does not die with the passing of time. It's an everlasting love. And because of that, he says, he will continue his faithfulness to them. You and I are in the same position. I mean, we can't know God's love as deeply as we ought to at the outset. You can't know know God's love until you have been cast down in the guilt and the shame of your own behavior 
to the place where you feel like you have passed the point of no return. And then you hear once again God's kind words to you. Oh, virgin Israel, or, or oh, dear believer, my child, whenever you hear God's words to you that I have loved you with an everlasting love, you can't know the depths of God's love until you reach that point. And then there's a whole nother level where someone has scorned you and someone has mistreated you and someone has disappointed you. And then out of the, out of the, the, the well of God's love that he's shown to you, you find that capacity to continue on in your love for them. That's when you begin to really fellowship with God. Well, this is what God is showing to them. He should have rejected them. 800 years of fickleness, 800 years of unfaithfulness, 800 years of showing them kindness and goodness and favor and them just ignoring it and spurning it and taking it for granted until finally, finally, God has to level this hand of discipline against them. And it's not until then that they know the real nature of God's love. It would have made perfect sense if God had given up Israel. It would have been made perfect sense if he had abandoned them and decided to start all over with a brand new people. In fact, that's what he offered to Moses. You may remember in Exodus 32 and 33 when Moses was making his, his intercession, God actually said to Moses, why don't I just obliterate this people and then start all over with you? In other words, you know, Moses, you will be basically the only remnant of Israel. I'll just begin and and through the seed, if you will, of you, then I'll start a whole new people. Moses correctly understood how that would profane God's name if he did such a thing because it would draw into question God's faithfulness. And so Moses pleads with God on the basis of God's own glory and God's own name not to do such a thing. Which, of course, God hears and God responds to. It would have made sense if God just had abandoned them and started all over. But that kind of love only makes sense in the context of our love. In the context of the world. In the context of our own limited capacity, which reaches its limits. And then we simply choose to stop loving because of whatever disappointments we faced. But God's declaring that his love is different. He is not going to simply set them aside for some other nation. He's going to prove the character of his love by continuing to love Israel in spite of these idolatries. He could have gone out and found some other nation that didn't have such a history. He could have gone out and found some other bride, some other wife who didn't have the history of disappointments. He could have done that. But it wouldn't have been quite the grand demonstration of his love that he showed to Israel. And so he tells them he's going to love them and he's going to continue his faithfulness to them. And his love will be just as sweet right now as it was all the way back at the beginning. When they were just his virgin bride. In fact he uses. If you'll notice. He uses three 
words, uh, the, the word, I should say, the word again, he uses it three times to hearken back to earlier days when God blessed them. He says in verse 4, again, I will build you and you will be built, O virgin Israel. That word built, when it's used in the context of a childless woman, is always in reference to the fact that God's going to give her children. And since this is the context here, he's using in a reference to the virgin bride, it appears to be a reference to the same thing here. God, who, who has watched and, and even had a hand decimating the population of Israel, God is going to rebuild their population. By the way, this is particularly powerful because what he's saying here in these verses 2 through, two through 6 are particularly directed at the northern kingdom of Israel. If you know your history a little bit, you remember that as Israel came under the reign of kings, of Saul, of David, and of Solomon, they were united, all, ten tri- all 12 tribes reunited under one king. But then after Solomon, the kingdom split into two, 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, And it remained that way. In fact, the the northern tribes even established their own temple. They wouldn't go down to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, to worship God. They established their own temple up in Samaria where they uh, operated a sort of a mirror religion, a a profane and, and false religion, but nevertheless a mirror religion until in 722 B.C., after about 200 years of that kind of setup, Assyria was overtaken by the Assyrians and excuse me, the northern kingdom was overtaken by the Assyrians and carried off into captivity. Their population at that point was utterly decimated. And now, as Jeremiah writes, it had already been some 80 years, it had already been some uh, for, for a long time this way, and it would remain that way for a long time. There were hardly any of them remaining. In fact, we read in 2 Kings... The writer tells us that even in Jeremiah's own day, Josiah had made some initial, some initial attempts to go up into the deserted hills of the northern kingdom and reconstitute Israel together to gather whatever few Jews were remaining there and to, to sort of rebuild the kingdom, but it was cut short by the death of Josiah. But here... You see particular language directed at the northern kingdom. Verse 5, he talks about the hills of Samaria, which is a particular reference to the northern kingdom. Or in verse 6, he refers to them as Ephraim, which was the designation for the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was often called Judah. The northern kingdom, Ephraim. So Jeremiah has given this prophecy and he's directing it especially at the northern kingdom whose population had been utterly decimated, almost completely disappeared altogether. John Calvin writes this, he says, quote, the prophet here amplifies the kindness of God because he would not only restore the tribe of Judah, but also the ten tribes who had previously been led into exile. The meaning then of the prophet is that when God redeemed his people, not only Judah would return, but also the Israelites, of whom there was hardly a hope, because they had been in exile for a long time, and as they had rejected the pure and legitimate worship of God, end quote. This is God saying, I'm going to build you, 
But in the most dramatic way, he says, I'm even going to build this northern kingdom. And you're going to be built. The population is going to be restored. And as he says back in verse 1, God would again be the God of all the tribes, all the clans of Israel. Not just a few sparse peoples, but a rebuilt and populous, multitudinous Israel. And then in verse 4, you see another time. He uses the word again. Again, you will adorn yourself with tambourines and go forth in dance of merrymakers. If you're one of those people that don't like dancing, you would not enjoy this scene. Not only here, but throughout the chapter, he talks about this over and over again. How there's going to be such celebration. People will be clanging their tambourines and making all kinds of commotion and noise with percussion instruments. And they'll be dancing with joy. Obviously, because God is restoring them. In fact, this was probably an indication of the kind of peace and the kind of rest that God had promised to Israel all the way back with Moses' prayer. It's just the opposite of what had begun at the, uh, back at the start of Jeremiah 30 when he was reminding them of the terror and the panic uh, that, that had ensued with the capture of Israel in the day of judgment. Now what you have is peace again that's going to lead to these celebrations. And then in verse 5, a third time, again, you will plant the vineyards On the mountains of Samaria, the planters shall plant and enjoy the fruit. All of this obviously means that there's going to be security and leisure to once again start vineyards. It's not something you do in wartime. In fact, Jeremiah uses a special word here for enjoying the fruit. It's a word that means to make it common. And it, it refers to the laws in Deuteronomy where people were not allowed to eat the fruit of the vine until the fourth year that it had been planted. And so this suggests that these aren't just sort of uh, fledgling vineyards. These are well-established vineyards who had reached the place of maturity that they could, according to God's law, make the fruit common. They could let it pass out of the sacred use for God into the common use of the people. And God is showing His everlasting love, His continued faithfulness to Israel in the fact that not only is He going to restore them, He's going to give them renewed population. He's going to give them new peace for these celebrations, new permanency so that they can plant their vineyards again. And then in verse 6, With even further explanation, he says, For there will be a day when the watchman will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. Now this gives us even deeper insight into what God is going to do because this describes worship, particularly a practice where where Israel would place watchmen on the peaks of their hills. You understand there were no telephones, there were no... It's sort of a wireless communication in those days. And so what they would do is they would place these people on the peaks of the hills so that whenever the festivals were announced in Jerusalem, they would signal, probably by lighted fires, all the way up Israel, they would signal the beginning of the feast so that people could make their pilgrimages down to Jerusalem. At the crescent moon, 
Once the full moon had fully uh, passed and the crescent had begun, these new moon festivals would begin and they would give their signals across the peaks of Israel so that all the northern tribes could make their way down to Jerusalem. So he's saying that this is going to be part of their restoration as well. That these northern tribes, these watchmen will say, arise, let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. Not to the temple even necessarily, but to God himself. No longer some distant God who dwells far away or outside the camp. He will be God dwelling in their midst and they will approach him. And they will draw near to him. So far from that vision of the wilderness. So far from that false worship. So far from that scorned people. These are people who truly love their God. Genuinely want to worship him. And gather to him. We know of course that Israel has yet to be reconstituted. Captives came back from Babylon, but even then there was animosity between them and Samaria. And as time passed, through all the various governments and kings of Israel, no one ever reconstituted Israel in this way. And so whatever he's talking about here is still not a reality. But we're not surprised by that because as we go on reading throughout the rest of the chapter, we realize that he's talking about things that wouldn't take place until after Christ himself comes when the new covenant would be established. But we can carry on with a sixth poem. It comes to us in verses 7 through 14 and we can call it From Brokenness to Blessing. Once again, you see this introductory formula, Thus says the Lord... Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, The Lord save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the furthest parts of the earth. Among among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together. A great company shall return here. With weeping they shall come. With pleas of mercy, I'll lead them back. I'll, I'll make them walk by brooks of the water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, and he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flocks. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He's redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the uh, the grain and the wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in dance. The young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. What we see here now 
is a description. We saw in the, 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 the poem in verses 2 through 6, we saw the people settled in the land. What we see here is a description of how they got there with a, with a picture of this massive caravan of people making their way back to Israel. And it all begins with verse 7, calling on the nations. The goyim is the word in Hebrew, the Gentiles. These are obviously converted Gentiles, believing Gentiles, because they're supposed to raise a voice of worship and praise to God for what he's doing. They're to proclaim, they're to give praise, and they're to say, the Lord save your people, the remnant of Israel, who are there in verse 7 called the chief of the nations, meaning they're the central focus of God's plan. They're also called the remnant, meaning that there's just a few of them in number at this point. As we said earlier, their population had been decimated, and so those returning are just this remnant. Again, you can see down in verse 9, this is once again talking about primarily Ephraim, the northern kingdom, but the reconstituted nation in such a dramatic way will encompass not only them, but he says in verse 8, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the furthest parts of the earth. So not just those returning from Assyrian captivity in the north, but everyone who had been taken to any part of the earth. Jews everywhere from Babylon to Egypt or wherever they might find themselves. And they come, he says... And it includes the blind, he says in verse 8, the lame, the pregnant woman, and even she who is in labor, a great company returning. Now this is not a, what you would call a triumphant group. The people Jeremiah mentions here are people who would have been considered the most weak, the most feeble, the most incapable of making such a journey. But he's using these people, he's highlighting these people, not to the exclusion of everyone else, but he's highlighting these people in order to make it clear that even those who we might consider most unfit for the journey are going to be coming. Unfit, you might say, physically or even spiritually. Because the point is that no one is left out. No one is excluded. There will be no threats, no hardships that would prevent them. In verse 9, God says, I'll make them walk by brooks of water in straight paths in which they will not stumble. God is going to make the way exceedingly easy for them. The one condition that they'll be required to meet is really spelled out in verse 9. With weeping they shall come. And with pleas for mercy, I'll lead them back. In other words, this isn't some indiscriminate program of welfare. God is looking to a day when Israel is in a state of repentance. 
God is looking for a day when Israel is crying out for mercy. This is another thing that tells us that whatever God's talking about here doesn't describe what happened in 536 BC or 516 BC or any of that. When Israel, still obstinate in heart, came back to the land of promise only to return again to their own idolatrous ways. Nehemiah tells us that he and Ezra both had to repeatedly tell Israel to put away their idols. But God is picturing a time when Israel is going to be a place of weeping, finally repenting over their sin, finally seeing their obstinance and pleading, pleading for, 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 for mercy with God. Rather than a hardened heart, rather than a rebellious heart, rather than a proud heart, rather than a stiffened neck, There's going to be a tenderness about them. They're going to finally see the foolishness of their way. They're going to finally see the destructiveness of their actions and their pathway. And it's going to open the gateway for God's mercy. In fact, you'll notice in verse 9, God says, He says, I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim is my firstborn. Again, this is as amazing as this statement about virgin Israel. Because you understand, this is a rebellious child. This is a rebellious son. This is a a son and a child who has heard the word from their father, God, and has spurned it. They have completely turned away from listening and they've gone their own way. They've gone after their own idols. They've gone after other gods. They've listened to other voices. And yet, God says that He is going to be a father to them. You know, many people have pointed out the parallels between Jeremiah 31 and Hosea Jeremiah would have been familiar with this book of Hosea that was written so many years earlier. And some of the things that he says in Jeremiah 31 are very similar to what you hear in Hosea, particularly in chapters 10 and 11, where God raises this this, uh, image again of Israel as a son. You understand, in the Old Testament, God is rarely called father. It's not a common designation, but you find it in Jeremiah and you find it in Hosea, where he pictures Israel as a son. And yet you hear the, you hear the pleas and the brokenness of God when he talks about Israel's rebellion. He says in Hosea 10.11, Hosea says, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thrash. I spared her, her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up the fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord that he may, be, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. He's calling Israel to these very things. He says in 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called though. The more they went away. 
And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him by the arms. But they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. I bent to them and fed them. And then he says with these poignant words in Hosea 11 verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. That's what the that's kind of image that God's bringing up whenever he calls Ephraim his son. He looks at him. And if you have children, you understand the tenderness of affection that you have for them. Even in their worst day, you could never imagine giving them up. He says, you're my son. I'm a father to you. In fact, he says, Ephraim is my firstborn, which takes you back, if you understand this, to a special place that had been given to Ephraim. He was not actually the firstborn. He was the younger brother to Manasseh. But in Genesis 48 verse 14, when Jacob comes to bless the sons of Joseph, he crosses his hands, or he actually puts his hands out to bless the two sons. And I think it was Jacob who crosses his hands, but he puts them back because he wants them to be just this way. But whatever... Uh, the sequence there, he blesses, Jacob blesses Ephraim as the firstborn. Even though he wasn't the firstborn. In other words, what Ephraim could never have by natural birth, by natural means, was given to him by selection and by choice. And this is what God's saying to the northern kingdom. Even though you are a rebellious child, even though you don't deserve my love, even though you're not treating me with the same kind of love, I am not going to treat you with contempt. In fact, I'll continue to treat you like a son. I'll treat you like a firstborn with all the honors and with all the blessings. This is what everlasting love looks like. This is what God's love looks like. It's not just words. It's deeds. And it's true. He goes on calling the nations again. And the coastlands in verse 10. The the goyim, the, the, the Gentiles. He calls them to proclaim this message. God who scattered Israel will gather him. God will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. God has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from hands too strong for him. All those are statements of God's undeserved kindness. And then in verses 12 through 14, again, he talks about this abundant joy, dancing. And he pictures people young and old caught up in this celebration of dancing and joy, gladness instead of sorrow. 
He says he's going to restore abundance. He talks about the goodness of the Lord so that they're like well-watered gardens, no more languishing, but feasting in abundance. In fact, down in verse 14, the offerings and the sacrifices are so abundant that when they come to the temple, he says, that those priests who are normally compensated by just a small portion of what's left over the sacrifices, he says, even they're going to have more than they know what to do with. Even they're going to have so much that they're going to be satiated by the abundance. Too much, really, for anyone to really completely consume. We read all this and it just seems so fanciful. I mean, it's a picture that we can hardly even get our minds around. And primarily because none of it has ever really been manifested yet. At least regarding the northern kingdom, there was never this reunification. There was never this multiplication. There was never this reconstituting. And so it's led a number of people to conclude, first of all, that it was just a big mistake. This was just wishful thinking on the part of Jeremiah. He was just so overcome with hope, maybe inspired by Josiah's attempts to reconstitute the nation that that he just got carried away and he just said all this stuff, but really with no effect. Or it has led a number of people to conclude that God has in fact given up on Israel and has decided to work through other nations. That God has just said, you know what, that they, they've sort of done enough. I'm going to show my love, but I'm going to show it. I'm going to transfer these promises. I'm going to, I'm going to just declare all this stuff to be sort of some, some large picture or figure. And, and I'm just going to do all these things in sort of a spiritual way for other people. Well, the everlasting love of God is everlasting. That's what he said about Israel. And when he said it, he didn't really mean it for another group of people. His name, his glory is at stake. And this passage is very clear. God will not give them up. In the intervening time, He says that he's going to send a Messiah, a king, who will reign over them. Part of that has already been talked about in chapter 30. We'll see it again later on. He's going to send this king. It's going to reign over them. He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. He's going to make them brand new. And it's only then when they reach this place of mourning and weeping and repentance that he's finally going to do these things. In the intervening time, God is still at work. He's working in the hearts of every person who responds to His grace and His everlasting love. He shows His favor, just like He did to Moses back in the wilderness. He shows His favor to men like Jeremiah and Hosea and Zechariah or Josiah or John the Baptist or Peter or Paul or whoever it might be. God grants them His mercy. Even to you. Even to you. If you have been that rebellious child and that adulterous wife, if you have been that, that discontent lover, if you've been the one who has 
so spurned God's grace that you've reached the point where you are wounded now by your own foolishness or even by God's chastening hand. If you are the one who has been, you believe, cast aside, God extends grace so that the deep wound of your sin can be healed, so that the one who's been cast aside can be brought near. And God will make a pathway for you as he does even for the Jews so that no matter what your condition, no matter what your condition, wounded, lame, blind, poor, you can make your way to God. Well, these are the promises of the new covenant as we work our way toward it. It is glorious to see the Lord's grace in this way. Stand together, we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Our dearest Heavenly Father, we bow before you as sons and daughters most unworthy of that title. For you've loved us as we could never deserve. Even when we showed ourselves rebellious, rejecting your counsel and your word, you still called us your firstborn. You shower us with your blessings. I pray that you would so deepen our understanding, that you would help us so that even when we face hardship and we feel the stern rebuke of your disciplining hand, we might never doubt your eternal and everlasting love. For it's as true as your commitment to Israel. So true is your love for us and we're grateful that it's an everlasting love, an undying love. We're grateful even for the picture of your love for the chief of nations. It gives us confidence that when we fail, no matter how great our failings might be, we can depend on your undying love. We can only pray that you would help us to be transformed by that love so that we could love one another with the same supernatural, unfailing everlasting love that we've been shown. Lord, we do love you because you first loved us. And may that love be forever our theme. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.